going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. Greetings and salutations, my friends. A very happy Monday. Hope all is well with you and yours. We're going to get right into it today. We're going to talk about Premier Jason Kenney and Treasury Minister, uh, Treasury Ministry, a.k.a. Finance Minister Travis Taves, uh, talking about their plan to get Albertans back to work today. Bill 3 is what they're recommending. We're going to talk a little bit about Bill 3 in just a few minutes with Richard Truscott from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. We'll also revisit the issue of rural crime in our province and some new data from StatsCan showing rural crime was 38% higher than in rural, uh, urban areas. Karina Williams is a counselor in the Northern Sunrise County, and she's also the chair of the Northern Sunrise Rural Crime Watch. We'll be joined by Karina after 4 o'clock to dive into some of the numbers and also some of the concerns because we do have a new provincial government in place. So what kinds of strategies, what kinds of questions need to be talked about as Jason Kenney and the United Conservative Party dive into yet another one of the topics that uh, was definitely talked about during the election campaign, insurance rate cap issues. Now, this was something that the previous provincial government put into place, but it's apparently creating some trickle-down effects And insurance companies are warning Alberta drivers now that they could lose coverage for certain types of claims of the cap on insurance rates if it isn't lifted. We'll be joined by uh, Global News reporter Tomasia De Silva. She's working on that story for Global News. Also, a really big story when it comes to the local economy and uh, a stalwart of the local uh, brand scene, I suppose. When it comes to WestJet, Onyx agreeing to buy WestJet for five billion dollars but what does this mean mean not only for the future of the airline but maybe its brand and everything else that comes along with it wayne mcneil is the founder and president of mcneil and associates consultants limited aviation consultants we'll be joined by wayne after five o'clock to dive into that uh, discussion and what exactly it means not only for the company and for its shareholders but also for those of us who may be flying WestJet. In the days, weeks, and months, and years ahead, makes you wonder, will we see a different name? Will we see a different brand? Or will we just be seeing more of the same, but maybe even more amplified? So Wayne will be able to dive into that. And also, a few people have been talking about the idea of multi-sport versus one sport when it comes to your kids. And is it better to be multidisciplinary, or is it better to uh, be so focused on your one sport. I mean, a lot of kids now, hockey season is gone. It's over. They're taking the ice out of the rinks. But you've got dry land. you got inline. you got all these different things happening because as parents, we want our kid to succeed. And if they're dead set on being the next Connor McDavid, Mario Lemieux, whoever the case may be, who are we to say get in their way? But is it really doing any benefit you're starting to see more and more organizations coming up saying listen you got to get the kid away from the sport for a little bit even even if it's for a couple of months just to refresh the body refresh the mind richard monette is the lead for active for life you can check them out activeforlife.com and we're going to talk about some of the benefits of being multidisciplinary in sports, especially when it comes to kids. It's all it's all well and good once you get into your latter teens to start focusing in on one sport or even your mid-teens. 
But if you're doing it by seven or eight, is it really doing that much good for a kid? We'll chat with Richard about that after 5.30. What we're going to start off with first, though, Richard Truscott from the Canadian Federation of Independent next to talk about uh, Premier Jason Kenney's plans for action to get people in our province back to work here on Calgary Today. Lots of talk today surrounding Premier Jason Kenney and whether it's the carbon tax. Obviously, we've got a, a sitting of the legislature coming up soon. He says the end of the month is when the, the provincial carbon tax is going to die. But this is all part of a bigger scale announcement by Premier Kenney and Finance Minister Travis Taves to create jobs and get Albertans back to work. And here's what he had to say right off the hop. Alberta will have the lowest business tax rate in Canada, and by the time we get to eight points uh, in 2022, we'll have um, we'll be 45 percent lower than the next highest uh, tax rate in Canada, making this province a huge magnet for job-creating investment that will get our economy back to work. So this is the job creation tax cut. Legislation will be called Bill 3, and it'll take Alberta's general business tax rate from 12% to 8% by January 1st, 2022. Joining us now for a little bit more reaction to today's announcement is Richard Truscott from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Thanks so much for the time today, sir. You bet. No problem at all. Let's start off with your reaction first and foremost to today's announcement from the Kenny government. Well, no big surprise, but they do plan to follow through with their reduction in general corporate income tax, and we think that's actually a good move. We had been advising that they look at something on the small business side, but uh, reducing that overall general corporate rate, I think, is good news. That's going to help kickstart the economy and get things moving again. Of course, that's something that certainly benefits a lot of the small and medium-sized businesses uh, across the province that we represent. So, yeah, a good news announcement in our, from our perspective today. Talk a little bit about the the long term thinking that is going into this. I mean, there's a there's some thinking into not just the next couple of years, but we're talking 2022 yeah. here. Yeah, that's right. And I think the government rightfully is looking at ways to get that Alberta advantage back. And Alberta, you know, five or ten years ago was a place where businesses uh, really could prosper and grow. The taxes were low and reasonable, and there was less red tape, and it was just a, generally a good place to, to run a business. And we've sort of seem to have gotten away from that. And so the government getting back to providing some tax relief, looking at regulatory reform and some other things, I think those between all of those things, that's going to be uh, make for a meaningful strategy to get the province's economy back on track. And, you know, I think a lot of this actually is just psychology, getting people feeling better about the future, including entrepreneurs, and, you know, having them believe that they can soon grow their business and create jobs and really feel better about the next few years. So, yeah, let's hope that the, this really gets things moving. Do you think that this is going to lead to the job creation that the province is talking about? I mean, like 55,000 jobs is, is a lot of jobs to be thought of here. Yeah, well, and, and those estimates can vary widely depending on some of the assumptions you make when you're doing those calculations. But generally speaking, if people are feeling like the province is moving in the right direction, that the government has their back, they're not going to be coming through with new taxes or a whole bunch of new uh, paperwork and regulations and red tape, that they can go ahead and, and expand their businesses and create jobs. And, and that's something that's good for the economy. So I think, again, a lot of this is psychology, but really getting, you know, making sure that uh, Elber's entrepreneurs have a government that uh, understands their needs, that knows the importance of, of tax relief and knows 
how important it is to cut red tape and make it more easy to run a business in the province. I mean, those things go a long way to really fostering that positive outlook that we need to get the economy rolling. From a small business perspective, how significant is 12% versus 8% or even 11% by July 1st? Yeah, well, a lot of these uh, reductions are not going to be helping our members. They'll be helping bigger companies. But those bigger companies, of course, have as their clients and customers a lot of smaller firms. So just generally providing that tax relief is going to kickstart the economy, give it a good kick in the pants. That's something good. And, we, you know, we've got a lot of work to do because we've seen some of the lowest small business confidence levels in Alberta in the last couple of years. We really need to turn things around and get think- people thinking that there's better days ahead. And I think this is exactly the kind of thing that uh, the economy needs, this injection of tax dollars back into the pockets of investors, back into the pockets of business owners, and, and of course, uh, employees, too, by, by reason that that exactly is, is who we're trying to help and get people creating jobs and, 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 and uh, having good jobs. So all this stuff, I think, is generally good news. It may be a little bit more optimistic than some people might say, but, uh, gosh, I think we have uh, certainly have to be thinking about better days ahead. It's been a really rough ride for small business and for the economy more generally over the last couple of years. How important is it for people to take uh, all of the news into context rather than, okay, here's here's a piece about the tax rate and here's a piece about this and here's a piece about that. It's got to be the sum of its parts. That's right. Yeah, and all these things together uh, make up for a meaningful economic strategy, something that we uh, have seemed to have lacked in the last couple of years. I mean, the government was trying to write out, write out the difficult times and you know, claiming they don't have influence over the oil price and the, and the price of resources, and that's true, but they do control the response to it. And I think this type of approach makes a lot of sense if you're trying to provide some tax relief, inject some money back in the economy, and hopefully the government will be doing other things, other measures, like uh, boosting uh, training for employees, like cutting red tape for small business. All those things in their totality are good news and will ultimately improve the outlook, I believe, of entrepreneurs. And underneath all of that is uh, supporting the economy and creating jobs. Is there a bigger conversation to be had, though? And I'll use the carbon tax as an example, is especially for small business. You know, we, we get kicked in the pants with that. But at the same time, the minute that we repeal it, it you have the federal one come in. So there's got to be that uh, not just a provincial conversation, but also a federal conversation yeah. on this as well. And we're going to be talking about this a lot because we are moving, of course, into the, when we move into the fall period, we're moving into an election season federally. And uh, that will be the carbon tax will be a huge issue during that campaign. And depending on what happens, I mean, we could have, uh, yeah, a federal carbon tax in Alberta or maybe not. And so, yeah, this is a broader conversation. And, I, you know, the feds have to step up and do some things that, you know, to support businesses and get the economy uh, stronger. I mean, Alberta's really been in the doldrums, but generally across the country, you know, the economy's been pretty soft and been sort of teetering on the edge of recession. So, you know, whoever's in part in, in power, whatever party's in power, they really have to focus on strong economic policy and getting entrepreneurs and business owners and people feeling better about the future. And that's something I think the Alberta government has taken some good first steps on and certainly hope we hope the feds, whichever party's in power, you know, take up that call and, and really do some things to, uh, to help the economy get moving again. Do you think that these lower taxes will actually stimulate more investment down the line? I think so, yeah. And obviously, there's a revenue hit in the short term, but the whole plan here is to get the economy going, getting, getting businesses spending, getting consumer spending, governments generating uh, more tax revenue as a result of that increased economic activity. So there is definitely some, some wisdom to this. And it isn't just one little piece or, or one issue or one idea or one strategy. It's all that stuff together. And I think we're definitely moving in the right direction. And hopefully, 
we'll get a pipeline. That's another key part of this. And the new governments will get a revenue boost from that, and our economy will improve from that. And also the optimism will increase as a result. So, yeah, there's a couple of missing pieces. The carbon tax is a big unknown. But what happens with the pipeline? That's going to be a big deal. And we'll certainly find more about out about that in the next couple of weeks here. One of the things that I t- took away from uh, Premier Kenny's decision today and, and the conversation was uh, not only being competitive on, on a Canadian stage and making sure we've got the lowest tax rates here, but mm-hmm. even beyond that, he took went out of his way to talk about the U.S. and, and by the end of this being yeah. more competitive than, I think it's 44 out of the 50 states. How Is this the kind yeah. of marketplace that we, we need to be playing at or do we need to f- focus just on being in our own in our own backyard? No, I, I think we do have to think more globally. We need to think about uh, Alberta's position in Western Canada and within the entire country and also within the North American market. Um, and so, you know, we, there's certainly some tensions between the U.S. and China and, and making sure we get the uh, the new Canada-U.S.-Mexico free trade agreement ratified uh, in the U.S. Um, so there's a lot of big unknowns. But, you know, yeah, I, I just think generally politicians, policymakers really need to focus on the economy at this point in time. And if we don't have a strong economy, it makes it really difficult to pay for some of those important social programs and some of the other priorities that we all have. And so we really got to get the fundamentals right. And if Alberta has an advantage on taxes and on on cutting red tape, let's let's do that. Let's make Alberta the best place to run a small business in the entire country and in North America or even the world, quite frankly. That should be the objective. I'm wondering, there's a lot of different things at play when we talk about getting Albertans back to work. And yet, would you have a piece of advice for the Kenny government moving forward in terms of what to do, particularly when it comes to those small businesses? Yeah, I would say that every single policy they pursue on uh, fiscal issues and on economic issues needs to be informed with the perspective of business owners, of small business, and really putting that lens or that filter on every policy to make sure it makes sense to the small business owner, to the person that's really trying to eke out a living, growing their business. And if we can do that, then that's going to be, we're going to create better public policy. We're also going to create a a group of entrepreneurs, of business owners in Alberta that are very positive and optimistic about the future. And I mean, ultimately, that's going to help drive the economy forward. It's not just oil and gas. You know, there's a lot of small businesses, a very important sector in the Alberta economy. If we can get that, uh, you know, moving along again, that's going to help us all. Has there been much in the way of questions from small businesses that are created in those niche markets here in Alberta since the new government came in? Uh, I, I know there's been a lot of talk about, say, uh, the solar energy uh, industry yeah. here or even the beer industry here has had some questions as to, you know, are we going to have the same access that we had before with some of these the, the small business loans and that kind of thing? Are there still some, some lingering questions or lingering doubts that are happening in, in your circles? Yeah, I think so. I think there's a lot of questions about some. what's the fate of some of those things, um, including the, the uh, I would call the boutique tax credits that the government created on uh, capital investment and on, um, you know, there's a couple of tax credits they created for very specific types of businesses. And we would prefer a broader approach that uh, helps reduce the tax burden on everybody and not just sort of target some tax relief to certain kinds of companies or certain sectors. Uh, because when you pull out that uh, support, often those jobs go away, those companies disappear. And what we really need in Alberta is some permanent, sustained, ongoing economic development. The economy needs to grow, businesses need to form and to be successful. But, you know, when governments get in there and start picking winners and losers and, and targeting tax relief to certain kinds of businesses or, or certain sectors, I, that really starts to get me worried that uh, it may look like uh, they're doing something on the face of it, but really overall they're increasing the tax burden on everybody else to pay for those things. And whereas they should be focused on just creating good fundamentals and letting entrepreneurs figure it out and, and you know, really move the economy ahead and 
that sense. And then even beyond that is allowing the market to dictate how, whether or not a, a product or a service is yeah. actually worth its weight in gold. That's right. I, we don't want to turn entrepreneurs into grantrepreneurs and who are chasing, you know, government programs and government running. Rather, you know, they should be focused on the things they're good at, and that's running their businesses, creating jobs, and supporting the local economy that they're operating in. And if uh, yeah, if they're busy chasing government money, that uh, certainly defeats the purpose there. So I think just to getting the fundamentals right, creating a good base for Alberta businesses to succeed, that's really where the focus of the government needs to be. Richard, I do appreciate the time this afternoon. Thank you so much. Hey, no problem, Joe. Take care. Richard Truscott over at the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, Vice President for Alberta and BC. And of course, all the reaction from the usual players today when it comes to this particular plan, the Alberta Federation of Labor, for example, obviously not endorsing the UCP's tax plan, calling it, uh, saying it's giveaways to profitable corporations. They say that it's, quote, but this has literally never happened anywhere. This approach has been called trickle-down economics, but it should really be called snake oil economics. It's a false cure that makes the patient sicker, not healthier. As well, uh, when you look at another group, Public Interest Alberta, saying there is never a good time to cut taxes for the wealthy, but to give the most profitable corporations a tax break when Alberta's shortage of government revenue is already severe means regular Albertans will pay the price. We will pay for it with cuts to the public services Albertans value. I have a hard time believing it. I mean, I'm I'm born and bred capitalist, mainly because the market's the market, and so let the market dictate whether a company is good or, or that kind of thing. That being said, I, I am curious about this whole notion of whether or not these these business tax cuts will actually amount to more um, investment here. Time will tell, I guess. Scalger today on 770 CHQR. New Stats Canada report released last week showing Alberta's 2017 rural crime rate was 38% higher than its urban crime rate. Now, it's been a high Pri- or t- topic of high priority in a lot of circles and wanted to bring in somebody who's uh, been at the forefront, not only in the rural government aspect, but also from a rural crime watch aspect. And Karina Williams is counselor for the Northern Sunrise County, also the chair of the Northern Sunrise Rural Crime Watch. And she joins us now to dive more into what she's seeing on the front line. Karina, thanks so much for the time today. Thank you. I appreciate you calling me. I don't think anybody is really surprised looking at the StatsCan report that shows that rural crime in Alberta was much higher than our urban counterparts. From your standpoint, sitting as a counselor in Northern Sunrise County, and you also volunteer, I understand, with the Alberta Community Crime Prevention Association, what are you hearing on the front lines? What are you hearing from taxpayers and, and those who are being directly affected by these crimes? It's more... Uh part of living in fear and part of wondering how is this ever going to change? Why are, is the rural areas getting hit so hard? Mm-hmm. From that standpoint, are you able to give them answers or do you think that we're making any kind of progress? I mean, this report is from 2017, so we are a couple of years removed from it, but it's still something that is obviously still prevalent. Yes, it's definitely getting the word out there that The police are actively um, around the rural areas now, more so because Crime Watch rural groups are growing. 
So the word is out there. We're trying to communicate with the communities of making sure you speak with your neighbours and report those crimes. That's the biggest issue is people rely on Facebook, which has a great concept of itself. But unless you call in that crime to the police, they don't have a report on it. Is there also a, a bit of a change of mindset, especially, in, and I grew up in that uh, mindset, which is you don't need to lock the doors at night. You can keep the gas tanks open without a, a padlock on it. You don't need to lock the shop. Like It almost needs to be a, a bit of a change of mindset and understanding that uh, the times have changed. Oh, definitely. That mindset is gone. We can no longer live in those that mindset anymore. Everything has to be locked up. Every, your light in your yard has to be really bright. You need lines of sight so your neighbors can see in, you can see out. Because rural people, we like our privacy, but in having that privacy, you cannot see if an intruder is there and your neighbors can't see either. So that combination really makes it uh, great for somebody with the not best intentions to enter your house. You mentioned the idea of reporting the crimes, but also the the standpoint of uh, preventing the crimes in the first place. You mentioned the lighting. What other kinds of things are you telling residents as they they go about their day and try to uh, crime-proof their homes and their yards and, and their farms? So first off is remove those keys from vehicles. Don't leave your keys and your doors open. That's the way farmers used to be is leave the keys in the uh, your cup container or you know somewhere in the truck that everyone knows where they are and the assailants know that now so now you've got to keep your truck locked keep the keys with you have your yard lighted lighted really well and maybe trim that little bit of tree so you have a bit more of a gap to see through we're not asking someone to to actually take down their trees, but just to trim a few branches so people can see in, lock your doors and just remove those toys that are that are seen, that are easy to see, your quads, your, um, your tractors, anything like that that has a key, just remember to remove those keys. I assume from a municipal standpoint as well is that you're starting to see, I mean, we're having the conversation here on the radio. We've we've heard uh, loud and proud even during the, the election campaign and that is that rural crime is still top of mind for a lot. Are you getting the sense that municipalities are starting to work together and starting to, to fact share and, and that kind of thing in an effort to uh, figure out some best and not only best practices, but even to get to the root of the problem, get to those people who they think are, say, the prolific offenders that kind of thing oh definitely we know the rcmp do target those offenders that they know are on the streets they know who they are and working together with the municipalities definitely the word is out there my my i myself i for our regional crime watch i've reached out regionally so instead of having the small groups around we have one major crime watch now so we have over 500 members and it really helps because crime has no borders they're going to move between towns uh, cities so you need to have that communication open
I know in Alberta we have the Rural Property Crime Reduction Strategy, which was launched last year. We now have a, a new provincial government in place, and so I'm curious, what kinds of things are you going to be advocating for uh, with this new government in terms of whether it's to improve what's what you have or to continue what you have or to change what you have now? I think we need to change from a re- reactive response to a proactive response. We've got to start from the very beginning. So you've got to target the youth. You've got to get into that mental health, the drugs. So you've got to stop that at the base core because most crime is to feed their drug addiction. So we've got to stop that at the front point and then to move forward and open the eyes and ears of everybody in the community so we can work together and be everyone's neighbor. We tend to have lost that, especially in urbans more so than rural, but we lose our neighborhood contacts. So we need to build that and we need to build the communication and build a hub so that everybody has the help they need from restorative justice to the mental health, to the RCMP, to everybody. Karina, I do appreciate the time this afternoon. Thanks so much for, for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate you calling me. Karina Williams is a counselor with Northern Sunrise County, also the chair of the Northern Sunrise Rural Crime Watch. As we uh, take a look at StatsCan numbers showing that rural crime is outpacing uh, urban crime by about 38%, which says a lot. And, and again, you look at the numbers and, and it's it's interesting, even on the text line, a lot of people saying, oh, I thought this was not an issue. Well, keep in mind, these are 2017 numbers. But it is still a topic that is top of mind for a lot of people, even talking to people in not even that rural. I mean, you look at some of the communities just outside Calgary borders, Airdrie, Cochrane, Oak Tokes, Chestermere, they're dealing with those same kinds of things. And so you have to ask the question as to why are they see are the criminals seeing more opportunities out there because they know that there's might not be a, an officer in the vicinity. Do they think that they might be able to get away with it because there's not that many people around? It's not well lit, that kind of thing. And so to Karina's point we got to get to the the base of it got to get to the the start of it first and i think it does start with uh getting to the drug programs getting to uh youth making sure that we are we are being intervent or becoming the intervention and even beyond that being a little bit more proactive about things it's something that that really worked under police chief for canton here in calgary i thought with youth link and some of that stuff you were starting to see some progress and i don't know if it's a downturn or whatever the case may have been but things uh, seem to have fallen off the rails just a tad. A focus for one of the stories coming up in the global news is surrounding Tomasia da Silva, and she's talking about insurance. And there's been some issues coming up, and especially as we head into hail season, there's some questions as to what can you get covered for, or are there things that are going to be changing because under the uh, previous provincial government, there were some changes to caps and that kind of thing. And so I wanted to kind of get down to the nitty gritty on and get a little bit of context. Tomasia joins us now on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. You're welcome. Give us a little bit of the Coles notes on the basis for this story and some of the concerns that are being outlined by the, the different sides in this. So a few weeks ago, I did a story on uh, insurance, auto insurance in Alberta. And I had a huge response to that from people saying that they are getting renewal notices that are very, very lengthy. They're being asked to pay all of their premiums up front. They're seeing unreasonable hikes. So 
people just bombarded us with uh, complaints after that story ran. I talked to the IBC, the Insurance Bureau of Canada, about this, and they're saying, listen, this is happening across the board here in Alberta, and we can expect to see more unless changes are made. And what kinds of things are leading up to these decisions? What's leading up to it mostly is the provinces, the previous government, the NDP government's 5% cap on auto insurance rate hikes. They put that in place, of course, to keep costs down for Alberta drivers and so that insurance would be affordable for drivers. Well, the insurance industry is saying that while that was good, you know, it was good in principle, it's not working and that it, in fact, is causing claims to go up hugely for them and they're paying they said up to a dollar 30 for every dollar in claims right so from that standpoint what are providers telling you providers are saying they just can't keep this up Mm -hmm. something has got to give so what they're doing is uh they're doing the, the lengthy renewal process for many drivers so you have to fill out huge forms if you want to get your insurance renewed regardless of how long you've been with the insurance provider they're making you pay all your entire premium up front and they're really making you shop around and drivers are saying that this is not fair it's not their fault you know they've been paying their insurance it's not their fault that the claims costs have been spiraling out of control for the past few years and uh, but the insurance industry says it's also not their fault so it's really a, a catch here, a catch-22. Like, what are you supposed to do? Well, and especially from a consumer standpoint, as you mentioned, there are those concerns. And so are there any uh, tips or tricks that are being provided for uh, for those consumers to say, okay, here's how you get that best deal or here's where you need to be looking to make sure that you are uh, doing your due diligence? What everybody is doing is shopping around. So, I mean, you have to be provided insurance in Alberta. That's not that that's not an option. You have to be given per insurance coverage. However, some insurers, what they're doing is that they're not giving you the options. They're not giving you other options. I mentioned the payment plans, but they're also not giving you other options such as hail coverage or theft coverage. And apparently theft coverage, one of the biggest problems here in Alberta. So you're not given that option. To, so a lot of people are going without. So what are you supposed to do? Well, the IBC has sent a letter to the, the new premier asking them to look into this rate cap, seeing if there's anything that can be done about that. Jason Kenny, we did talk to him today. He did say that, you know, it is a concern. He knows it's a concern. He's hearing it from all sides, and he is willing to sit down with IBC and uh, try to come up with a solution. I will mention, Joe, that one of those solutions likely not uh, rate decreases. Mm-hmm. Just just saying. Yeah, that doesn't really surprise, I don't think, anybody, but it's good to get a little bit of clarity, and of course, we'll be able to uh, watch your story tonight at 5 and 6. Tomasi Thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. You're very welcome. A little bit of a surprise in local business news today as WestJet has entered into a friendly deal with Onyx Corporation valued at $5 billion, including assumed debt. Joining us now to provide a little bit more insight into the deal is Wayne McNeil, founder and president of McNeil and Associates Consultants and aviation consultant. Uh, Wayne, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Welcome, Joe. So, pleasure. Give us your reaction first and foremost to today's announcement regarding WestJet and Onyx. Well, it was a, a bit of a surprise for, I think, even a lot of people in the industry didn't know it. But uh, I guess when you start to delve into a little bit, it's the uh, WestJet shares over the last few years have been fairly complacent without much of a growth. And there's been a lot of 
pressure from Air Canada on providing new services to, throughout South America and Asia, and particularly into Europe, which is putting on pressure on on uh, WestJet. And I think it's maybe the WestJet board was looking at how do we improve things for the investors and bring them along. And if you've got shares that, as they started off, yes, they were about $18, and they've been in that range for some time, which is still very good. And you get a, an offer, uh, I don't think it's out of the blue, that basically goes to 31 Dollars is a pretty good incentive to it. And when you start looking at even Clive Beddoes, the chairman of, of WestJet, uh, he's getting to an age where maybe he wants to uh, sell some of his shares and, you know, go sailing on the West Coast. Yeah. And uh, so you can see that there is some rationale to it. And uh, the other thing is Onyx is experienced in airlines and the aerospace industry sort of thing. They've been around for, for a long time. And uh, uh, as I pointed out, uh, they have at one time made an offer to buy Air Canada back in 1999, including, you know, Canadian Pacific Airlines. And then there was a back off from Air Canada with some support from United Airlines and Delta to counter the offer at at that time, it was about $930 million sort of thing. And it sort of disappeared, and people didn't hear too much about Onyx. But Onyx is a hedge fund of things. What they do is they invest in companies. They put in equity if they need it. They provide new management if it needs it. And then they turn around and build it up and sell it again. And that's what they did in a firm called Spirit Aerosystems in the United States a while ago. And they bought that from Boeing for in 2005 for again uh, um, approximately uh, 950 million dollars. They put some equity into it, and nine years later sold it for 3.2 billion dollars. So that's the type of stuff they do. So they're very good at money management. Not necessarily good at airline management. I assume they're going to probably keep the airline management intact at WestJet. Mm. So from that standpoint, then, when, I mean, they're no stranger to the business by any stretch, but what do you expect uh, Onyx to do over the next little while to maintain, the, A, the stock price, but B, is to be able to move it forward so that they could potentially sell it down the line and, and make some coin and turn it around like uh, you've mentioned in some past deals? Yeah, I think... What they'll do is, uh, and I, they have probably done it to some extent already, is take a good look at what's going on and uh, make investments where it's required and stuff. As you're probably aware, uh, WestJet made a bit of a stumble when they put the four seven Boeing 767s into Europe for the last couple of years and ran into mechanical problems with those and now have got a new strategy. And the first two are now in Calgary with the seven. 87 uh, that will be introduced and that is a brand new airplane it should not have the problems that the used 767s had and uh, the uh, they also have uh, a plan of getting uh, narrow bodies from eastern canada into europe and i think onyx will take a look and see is that the right strategy and stuff like that and i think uh, you'll see some some moves but it won't be immediate until they have had an assessment of what does the financial aspects look like and what's the rest of the industry is going to because 
a lot of the industry is going through the same kind of turmoil these days. And I think they probably want to say, what's the trend coming out in the next few years? And then they'll make, they'll make the appropriate decisions. And who knows, it may be another 10, 15 years, and they'll say, we'll sell it to another conglomerate group that's got the kind of money to do it. But with $5 billion, you know, there's not too many people in the market. No, absolutely. From the branding standpoint of WestJet, I mean, here in Calgary, it's it's one thing that to say, you know, the WestJet, and we're we're loud and proud about it being a Calgary-based uh, company. Do you expect Onyx to stay with the WestJet brand at all? Do you think that it's going to be uh, undertaking some changes and in, in that kind of thing, or do you think that they're going to keep it as is and and allow the name itself to uh, speak for itself? Well, I think it's been very good branding up to, up to now. It's been, as you say, it's a thing for Calgary, even Western Canada. It's become that. And I think that the Onyx thing will probably enhance that branding and try to introduce it into Eastern Canada more and other international designations where, where people will rec- start to recognize the name WestJet. Uh, so I think you're going to find that the, it's not going to be rebranding. I think you're going to see a finesse of uh, going into into newer markets and pr- getting their message out before they start going into new places and things like this. But definitely, it's been worked for the you know for the last thirty years for WestJet, and I can see it continuing in the you know future. Uh, one of the questions that comes up is, will the consumer actually see anything different? Or do you think that this is a deal that is more aimed towards the business side, the shareholder side? I think it's going to be mainly a deal for the financial uh, side of the, uh, the, the business. But when you start looking at what's happened to, to WestJet, and there is a turning that's happening now as you get more and more employees who have not been there for a long time etc and then they're you know today people don't have long-term careers and i think that if i was in the uh, anything to do with onyx i'd take a look at how do you still keep that west jet spirit going sort of thing as you get far more new employees who do not have the background or the reason for loyalty and it's the same loyalty you got to do with your customers as you do with your with your people that you have. And years ago, uh, you know, WestJet had a fantastic dealing with all their employees and things like that. And I assume that that still continues, but not as effective as it was, say, 10 years ago in terms of getting communication back to the actual individual employees. And uh, that's needed if you're going to have long-term stability because if you uh, let it get going out of your hand, as I say, it could lead to uh, brand loyalty, this this fearing, and also, you know, investors in terms of because uh, what we've got with Onyx, this will become a private uh, airline too as well. Those shares will be all repurchased, so it'll be a private airline once once again. And you may not find that the same type of uh, goals and object objections that will be in place when you're a private airline again, because. They are not bound by some of the public pressures that you will find. You mentioned earlier on about uh, the the state of the industry as it stands now, and some of the players are kind of poking around a little bit. What is, in your mind, the state of the industry now, and what kinds of things do you foresee needing to happen just on a on a, an overarching basis for all the airlines to keep making go of things? 
Well, I think the the biggest thing that threats us in North America and in Europe as well is the, the price of fuel is is creeping up. And as you're probably aware, fuel is one of the major costs on the thing. And there's other costs too that are coming into because, as you are aware, unionization for WestJet is something that's coming in. WestJet started off as a non-union one, made rapid growth on that, and I think that you've got to say, well, what can, can you <laughs> Do in terms of repeating that in terms of wage increases and what you're going to do in terms of fuel sort of thing. And you're going to get back into the old days of, of fuel caches on the way in terms of looking for deals and et cetera, because of the uncertainties in Vancouver, for instance, now we're paying over a dollar seventy a liter because of fuel increase prices and, and including taxes here in, in British Columbia. And you're going to find that companies are going to get squeezed on that where they may have wanted to try a new route out, but because of the uncertainties of cost, et cetera, they want to try something like a narrow body aircraft first, and then maybe even it's a turboprop, and then introduce a jet, and then the international services Let's try a narrow body one onto Europe, and if it works out well, then we can start going into a, a wide body 787. So mm-hmm. you're going to see that that's happening with all the airlines to some extent. Is the they're going to experiment, but if it doesn't work out, there's no loyalty. They'll cut it and move on to another market. Mm-hmm. Wayne, I do appreciate the time this afternoon. Thanks so much for joining us. Okay, I hope it was helpful for you. Aviation consultant Wayne McNeil, also the founder and president of McNeil and Associates Consultants. As we talk about uh, the WestJet Onyx deal, $5 billion. And what does it mean for the future of the airline? And maybe just a little bit of shows a little bit of the uh, issues surrounding the industry as a whole as well. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in the years ahead as Onyx figures out what to do with uh, with WestJet. It's Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. One of the storylines that I've been, I watch with vested interest, being a sports guy, obviously, Attack Sports, uh, Sports Inc. is introducing families in the Calgary area to a new, more holistic approach in the development of youth athletes. That's the message that we got. And it begged a question that we've I've covered in this show previously and in a old podcast we called The Arena way back when. It was myself and Dave McIver and wanted to bring in our next guest again because he's very articulate in terms of some of the things that you need to talk about with your kids when it comes to sports. Richard Monet is the lead for Monet. Sorry, pardon me. Richard Monet is the lead for Active for Life and he joins us now. Richard, thank you so much for the time today. My pleasure as always. Let's talk about this idea of getting away from multi or getting away from one sport, uh, almost unidirectional uh, thinking into the idea of being multidisciplinary. And why is it so important for kids, especially, to get into that mindset of playing different sports instead of just focusing, you know, on one sport all year round? Well, the first thing you I want to say about this is that. Multi-sport athletes, when they're younger, uh, when they do choose one sport, if they want to become an elite athlete, they usually are are better at that sport than athletes who specialize early. So that's the first reason. The second reason is that you see in many sports a uh, repetitive stress injury uh, syndrome where athletes that, you know, kids that skate from the age of two and, and never do anything else or throw a baseball from the age of, of four and do nothing else, uh, 
what you see is that by the time they're 12, 13, 14, you see injuries that usually are, used to be injuries of, of, of men, basically, that were in their 30s at the end of their career. So better performance uh, and less injuries goes with, uh, you know, a multitude of different sports early in, their, in, in a kid's career. Does it surprise you at all that parents have taken that mindset of, hey, I need to uh, have my kid hunker down and, and play that one sport? And even, like I said, we're, we're getting out of the hockey season now for the most part, but a lot of parents are still saying, hey, you know, they can do inline hockey or they can do dry land hockey training. And it's, you know, we got summer camps galore for hockey. And it's how important is it to, to get away from that? Because it, it's, it's hampering the kid in their uh, overall abilities. Well, first of all, no, it doesn't surprise me because the infer- the information available, and especially if you go back five, six, seven years, information available actually got parents to push their kids in one sport. But there's been a shift. Uh, I think now parents understand better uh, that it, it, it's a good thing for kids to do different sports early on. Now, I, 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 we need to talk about age. Uh, you know, again, there are kids who want to be elite athletes in one sport, and there is a time in, in your career, in your progression, that you do need to specialize. So it's not a bad thing for everyone to do one sport. But even then, uh, I, you know, I'm a sports psychology consultant. I work with athletes, elite athletes in every sport. And even, you know, professional hockey players, when spring comes, they still train for hockey, but they do other things. They do other sports, other activities so that, that they don't tax their body too much. And there's also uh, the, the side where it actually helps them recuperate mentally to do other things, right? Mm-hmm. You mentioned that recuperation process, and I, I've seen a lot of kids who uh, tend to almost burn out from a sport because they play it for 10 or 12 years straight without having that mental break. And uh, how important is it to be able to take that deep breath and go, hey, I'm going to recharge the batteries, I'm going to still stay active, but uh, you know, the end goal to stay in the sport of my choice but to expand my horizons a little bit? And, and kind of take the pressure off a little bit. It's huge. Uh, you know, what you don't want to cause is you don't want a kid to repeat the same actions, but even worse, to be always in the same kind of environment, same kind of context, getting the same kind of instruction by the same kind of coach over and over and over and over again. I mean, even school, school is great, but then we take a break from school in the summer, right? We get that that period of time where you can actually refresh yourself physically, mentally, emotionally, and that really keeps the fire going, especially, again, in younger kids. Um, you know, eight and under, you've got to be multi-sport if you want to be good. You've got to be multi-sport if you want to remain active for life. As we were going to break, wanted to talk a little bit about um, that idea of resiliency, that, that idea of um, being able to... Um, kind of expand your horizons a little bit and also be a little bit more, a little stronger mindset-wise as well. Yeah, exactly. And i, I, I got to share something else, too. As I mentioned earlier, the, 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 the world of sport has changed a bit. You see more and more programs, uh, whether minor hockey programs or elite hockey programs or elite baseball programs, et cetera, et cetera, that actually now have incorporated uh, more of a multi-sport aspect in their programs. And I think if we really want to do well as a society, 
if we we really need to promote this approach in every organization that deals with kids sports mm-hmm. and one of the things too that i've I've gotten the the sense of with these conversations is that you also create better people in the grand scheme of things because you're you're suddenly expanding their horizons and making them continue to learn rather than just uh you know going in on those those really small nuanced um drills and and that kind of thing exactly and i'm going to share something from a professional perspective i have discussions with scouts in different sports and they're always looking at the full picture they're looking at the full person they want they want skills and they want performance in the the sport that they're scouting for but they're also looking in the history of that kid they look at if that kid has done other sports, if he's or she's a complete athlete. And they also look at things like resilience and growth mindset, which comes from doing many sports. Mm-hmm. And from that standpoint as well, I'd imagine there's a three-letter word in here that we sometimes forget about as well when we're going through the, the rigors of trying to make sure our kid is in the, in the best possible position to succeed, and that is fun. Exactly. And what's really interesting is that as a kid grows in a sport and grows in age, the definition of fun evolves. If you're looking at the eight-year-old kid who's playing, let's say, uh, basketball, fun will be different things than a 16-year-old who's playing basketball. We need to accept that early on, fun has to be driven by the athlete Fun has to be about being with their friends. Fun has to be about learning new skills, uh, about being in a safe, secure, uh, positive environment. When they get to be older and maybe they choose to be more of an elite athlete, then the fun comes from the item competition, uh, you know, facing uh, greater uh, adversaries and so on. So the, the definition of fun evolves. But you cannot take the kind of fun that a pro athlete or, or what a pro athlete finds fun and put that on the shoulder of an eight, nine, ten-year-old kid. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, Richard. I do appreciate the time. Great to catch up again with you, and uh, we'll chat with you before too long as well. Thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much. I find these conversations intriguing just in the sense of something uh, that's come to mind in recent years has been the idea that uh, a coach will suspend a kid for a game because they missed a practice so that they they could take part in a game for another sport. How counterintuitive is that? At least my books, anyways. It's Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. Thank you so much for downloading today's podcast. Do me a huge favor and leave a rating and a comment. And you can always hit me up on Twitter as well. Just follow me at Calgary today. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.